Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. In 2014, a journalist asked Cynthia Revo what she wanted to do next. Cynthia was 27 years old, just a few years out of drama school, and already making waves in the London theater scene. She'd starred in West End musicals, stolen the show in an all-female production of Henry IV, and been named one of Britain's best classical actors under the age of 30. So what did she want to do next? Everything, Cynthia answered. I genuinely want to do everything. It's a pretty ambitious career goal, but guess what? She's pulling it off. Cynthia became a Broadway phenom in 2015 when she played the iconic lead role of Celie in The Color Purple. Her performance and her voice astonished audiences and critics alike. It was, quote, like leather lungs soaked in honey, as one reviewer wrote. Cynthia won a Tony for the role and a Grammy, and an Emmy. It was an incredible feat, but then again, Cynthia is nothing short of an incredible artist. She's not just uniquely gifted. She is a palpable force of vitality and strength. Here's a fun fact. She once ran a half marathon right before going to the theater to do the matinee show. Maybe that's what you have to do if you want to do everything. Cynthia left The Color Purple last year and immediately got to work on her next act, making her film debut this fall with two back-to-back movies, the offbeat thriller Bad Times at the El Royale and the gritty crime drama Widows. And soon she'll take on the role of a lifetime, starring in a biopic on the legendary abolitionist, activist, suffragist, army scout, and spy, Harriet Tubman. Cynthia wants to do it all, and at just 31, she's already done a lot, but something tells us it only gets bigger from here. Cynthia Rivo. Yes. It is such an honor to have you as a guest on Unstyled today. Thanks. You're a busy lady. I am. Just a tad. (laughs) (laughs) You're really busy. I know it might be a little bit boring for you because you probably talked about it a million times, (laughs) but I would love to talk a little bit about The Color Purple. Sure. Sure. It's such an important book to me and so many people Mm -hmm. around the world, and obviously it's, it's still so iconic. And what was it like to find out that you were getting that role to play Celie? When I was in London, I had heard that The Color Purple was coming to London for a while and I was in the middle of doing another musical and I I don't know why, but my gut was like, I want to do this show. This show is the show I need to do this. I need to play this part and play this role. And I, I couldn't get rid of that feeling. So when it finally did come in, I did everything I could to, to get the role, um, but they wouldn't see me. Because you weren't as known at that point? I, I think so. I don't know. I think it was a combination of what they had seen already and the fact that I wasn't well known, I I don't know. But they just were resisting. And then a friend of mine, his name's Jason Pennycook, he knew the artistic director of the theatre and had gone out on a limb and said, you need to see this girl, She's, she's right for it. And so I had like, I think it was like two nights or something, two days to learn four scenes and two songs. 
uh, from the show. And I remember making a decision that I was going to learn everything like the back of my hand and I refused to, I don't want the paper in my hand. The whole show? Yeah, I wanted to learn those four scenes like I knew them already, like it was, I was already part of the show. And so I, when I, I remember I went in and I felt, I just felt grounded, like I was in the right place and did the audition, everything went really, really well. And then a couple of months later found out that I was doing it because there was something in between where they weren't sure if it was going to happen or not. Then it all went well and they called me and said they had, given me the role. Was that your first big established role that that really sort of thrust you into the I, spotlight in a, in a very different kind of way? Yeah, I feel like that was the role that essentially changed my life from that moment on. Yeah. And it has continued to do so. Yeah, it's it's been one of those moments that has just kept giving wonderful things, wonderful gifts whenever it, just when I think it can't give anymore, it gives something else. Alice Walker, I believe, is the first black woman to to receive the, the Pulitzer Prize. Prize. What did it mean to you to, to play this role and, and what responsibility did you feel like you had? I mean, I know that you've been in a lot of all-female casts and yeah. I think obviously playing particularly black women is, is really, really important to you. But yeah. like, what, what do you want to accomplish in, in playing a role like this? I wanted women who felt like they weren't being heard to know that they were and to know that there was someone who was listening and to know that their voices were valid. There's something about Celie that is constant. She doesn't give up, but you, her fight is really quiet, but it is a fight and she's she doesn't ever really give up. I think the first time you see her sort of think about giving up is towards the end of this show when she's just done as much as she possibly can in order to survive and just can't give anymore. And when you think she can't give anymore, she does because she fights for herself and she wants to live and she wants to have a good life. And And I wanted all those women who felt like they weren't worthy of that to see it on stage and, and to see someone like me live it truly. It meant the world to be able to tell this story because I try to pride myself on being as truthful about any of the, the characters that I put on stage, I don't ever want anyone to think that I'm just playing the role because that doesn't do anything for anyone. It doesn't do anything for me or for the person watching. The one thing that I wanted was for people to come in and see themselves on that stage and see themselves surviving something. And that's what she does. She survives. And for those women who have been through her abuse, eradication, being told that they don't matter, being told that they're ugly, being told all of these things which aren't true, to see someone overcome all of that and not really need any validation from anyone except from herself. And also you've been in, I believe they're, they're both all-female casts of Jesus Christ Superstar and Henry IV? Henry IV. Henry IV. Yeah. Do you ever think about like the value of disrupting like casting norms and things like oh, that? Yeah, I mean, and I think I find a particular joy being able to mess things up a bit, you know, because what happens is that you hear something from a different point of view. Being able to play a character that was normally a woman or being part of a cast where you know, Jesus Christ was usually a man and is now a woman. It's Shoshana Bean. And now I get to sing that I love her. It just tells a completely different story. You get to see something that wasn't there because I think as women, we have a different perspective on things anyway. And so our storytelling is going to be different just because it is. By default, that's how we are. We 
find the small things in storytelling that I don't know that everyone else can find. And I think that being able to do that makes other people see that we're able to do these things. You know, if you cast a woman in an action role that was supposed to be for a man, and that woman is able to do all of the the fighting in it, all of the action, all of the physical things in it. Well, now you know that women can also do those things too. And that means that you have to think differently now when you cast. It means it can't be that you just cast a guy because it's easy. Because now everybody knows that you went for the easy choice. And if there's no reason why this can't be played by a woman, then why don't you try? And so now I think by doing all of that, by disrupting the casting norms, you force people to actually think and work hard to find the right people for a role. I also think it's such an interesting time for for women in programming and in film and in mm. television in particular. And, you know, all the shows we watch are about women now. Yeah. And I think all the most interesting, complex, you know, sort of fascinating characters all revolve around all female casts or, yeah. or women. And even if it's like sharp objects and secure... Yeah. Um, Big Little Lies, um, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And I think it's it's so important to me. I mean, obviously at Refinery29, we, you know, sort of predominantly cater to, to young women. Mm. But it's important that it's not just programming. Like everyone's watching that. Like so many men are actually yeah. watching and sort of observing and taking in these stories. It's just really, it's, it's inspiring to me. I just, I get really excited about, and I think that, you know, The Color Purple kind of goes back to that time. I mean, yeah. I think I read that book when I was 12 or 13, and it was really my gateway book yeah. to, to serious writing. And, and it made me, it made me love to read because I just remember being so, like my whole life kind of opened up after that book because, yeah. you know, I grew up on Long Island. You know, I had I knew nothing of that time. You know, we weren't learning about it in school right. yet. So it was just really, it was really fascinating. Yeah. There's something about the color purple that I really, it's small things like the side of the building had three faces of three women of color. I don't know when that happened last. I don't know if it's happened before. I think it may be a first to have a massive billboard on the side of a building and then around Times Square with three huge faces of three women of color. It just was such a an astounding thing to see. Like, especially for me coming from London, I just have never seen that in London. It just hasn't, it doesn't exist in London. How long have you been living in New York now for? Uh, September makes it three years. You didn't really feel like you were recognized or kind of known until you came to the U.S. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What do you think it was different about the audiences in, in the UK? When I was there, and I and I hope it's different now, and I think it is different. When I was there, there was a lot of growth that needed to happen when it came to the way in which uh, women of color were viewed on stage, on screen, on film, wherever. The Color Purple happened, and we had an amazing audience. These audiences were coming, and they were having a spiritual experience just as we were having in New York. But it was almost like, I guess, I hate to say this, but I feel like the world around it, so you were talking about media and newspapers or reviews, seemed to think that because there was another play with an all-black cast, there could only be one and they couldn't coexist. And so I sort of got shoved under the rug, I guess. And it was really like we only have enough space for one right yeah uh it was really because ben Brantley came and did a review i don't know how or why he came to do a review of this show yeah he came to do a review of our show in london 
I had no idea. They didn't tell me when he was coming in. I was like, oh, no, the Times this. does not. Yeah, and it, we see this review and it's a love letter to us. And I read it thinking, oh my God. And it, But it wasn't like sycophantic. It was really like genuine. genuine. And I was like, oh, he got it. He understood it. He understood what we were doing. He understood the story we were telling. He understood that this wasn't a gospel choir on stage just singing songs we were telling a story and it was because of that that I think that really sort of shifted the idea that we could just take this from the UK and do it again in the US it broke my heart because I really did want to share it more with the UK audience I really did because I felt like it was a necessary piece of theatre that everybody needed to see but I'm also ever so grateful that he saw that and gave us that boost that love letter the words that he wrote were just really really gorgeous and and it meant that we got to give it more life and had it have not happened had we not moved it here I don't know that I'd be sitting in front of you right now so I don't know what happened or why there was you know we don't have enough space there isn't a theater we're not sure we don't know if it's so competitive it's so expensive it's just and also time consuming and I feel like it's so it's sad to me sometimes when I see these really short runs of of plays that are really good and you just know that they're a critical success but they're not getting the kind of audiences it's selective you know there are many Shakespeare plays that we've seen umpteen times but they keep getting the funding to be seen again but, you you know, a show that basically costs almost nothing. Our show costs very little because we don't have a set. We have, like, there's wood and chairs on a wall. That's literally it. There, there is no moving pieces. There are no set pieces. We don't have a massive band. Like, it was a really small, intimate play that required nothing but its actors, really and truly. So, you know, there is a selection there. It's sort of like, well, let's leave this one. We'll do, we'll do that. And that's fine. But what happens is stories get missed because of ideas of what a cast of colour can give or how much we're worth or what we can sell. It seems like it's such an interesting time for theatre right yeah. now in terms of just the the sort of, and maybe I don't know enough about theatre to support this, but it does seem that there's more openness to less commercial kinds of Here, stories. Definitely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here, definitely. And, and, and I'm hoping it's moving in that direction when it comes to the UK. I'm, I haven't been back, so I don't know what's showing particularly, so I don't know. But I know that here it's changing all the time. It feels like... There's a want to tell loads of different stories all at once, which is amazing. So I can go and see something that feels like it's from MGM and I can go and see a really small play at MTC. So it's like there's some amazing things happening and I just want that to spread out, particularly for the UK, because that's not what it was right then Hmm. when I was there. Unstyled Podcast is made possible by Refinery29 and Airy, your body-positive go-to for intimates and loungewear. You know exactly what you'd want to wear while binge-listening to your favorite podcast. Never retouched and always real, Airy gives you the everyday pieces that make you feel confident, strong, and always the real you in your own style.
I'd just love for you to tell us a little bit about your background, like growing up, yeah. like what was it like being raised by a Nigerian mom? My mom is kind of awesome. Uh, she Which came, means she's very awesome, right? You no, know, she's yes. Yes, super awesome. Yeah, Officially very awesome. Very, very awesome. Okay. She's <laughs> very special. It's just, she's a special kind of woman. She, I think she came to London when she was 24. She was supposed to study catering. Didn't want to, so she passed the classes for catering, sent the papers back to her dad, and then put herself through nursing school. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. She did everything she needed to. She made sure she studied chemistry, biology, all of those things that she needed, passed those, put herself into King's College University uh, for nursing. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. She didn't waste a minute. Not at all. And while she was studying to get her next level, she was, uh, she had me. And so she was working, studying, had me, but for some reason, nothing ever felt like it was missing. Yeah. So like our Christmases were amazing. She, we were always dressed really, really well. Food was always great. Like we always had presents under the tree. How many siblings I, do you have? Uh, just me and my sister. Okay. But I don't know. I really don't know how she did it. Was she a single mom? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, d I don't know how she did it. Like, she was, she's pretty awesome. She's definitely that kind of awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, the, I, I, when I think about it, Because like, she was young then, too. Yeah, she no, was no. probably yeah. in her, like, when early 30s, me, maybe. Yeah, she had me at 30, 30 I want to say 32, 32, 34. Uh, she, I can't remember a time where I was like, oh, I'm missing something. Because she seemed to fill every moment with, like, laughter and fun. And we would go to the park. She'd taught me how to ride a bike like genuinely I remember when she taught me how to ride a bike and I fell off many times and then I finally learned and it was great um and then what did she she would make sure that we would take like a mini holiday vacation every so often so it's because of her that I love traveling because she would I think it's something she wanted for her kids to be able to be unafraid of like going to places new experiences yeah, yeah. so I remember we took a family vacation to Italy when I was 13 uh, I think we went to Milan just because she wanted to go to Milan. I remember sitting her. We, this is when we had the big giant computers with the modems and whatnot. And she was looking at like Travelocity, Travelocity or something <laughs> like trying to book the flights and the holiday and the whole package together. And I think we got like a hotel room where we all stayed in the same room together. And I just remember having such fun doing that. And it's an adventure. Yeah. And she would make sure that we were. You know, at school, she would make sure that I had a, a musical instrument that I could play and all of these things. She just seemed to have the capacity to make sure that we were always adventuring somehow. And she knew before I did that, that I was going to be a performer for some reason. She has this, and I always tell the story because I think it's astounding. She has this baby book for both my sister and I. And in the beginning of the book, it asks what you think your daughter will be, or what you think your child will be. And I think the first entry about what she thought I would be was when I was about 18 months old, two years old, something like that, where she says she thinks I'm going to be a singer and asks why. And it's because I hum when I eat. She said she hums when she eats. I think that she's going to be a singer or an actress. Do you remember humming when you eat? No, can't remember it all. I can't remember any of this. 
Wow. I don't know how. And I wonder what you were humming. I don't know. I think I was just you making came into it this, up. You came into this life with this like yeah. sort of this this registry of melodies and and songs. I do think that children are very intuitive so. that way. And my mom plays music. She played music in the house all the time, all the time, all sorts of music, every kind of music, which is probably why I have the taste that I have because she just played everything from, I don't know, Diana Ross to Nigerian music to, I don't know, Boney M sometimes. And then it would be like, Anita Baker and then it would be I don't know the mechanics it just everything everything in the house everything wow. while we were in the car she would play she would have Magic FM is the what mechanics. we used to mechanics mechanics Magic FM used to play all yes. of everything from like the 80s and then I love be, Magic FM it's a beat and it's so gorgeous that so that, relaxing everything is so, so relaxing good. so relaxing on the way to school on the way Stevie back, Winwood Stevie all Winwood, that stuff always. I know so good Annie Lennox that's why that's how I learned about it because Magic FM always played Annie Lennox Diva I know Rhythmics always always and so I would just learn about music you know what they way. play now they yeah. always play Robbie Williams Do and they? I have to say whenever I come to London if I'm there for London Fashion Week I love like taking taxis or or, or Ubers because inevitably every driver listens to that station and angels. Robbie Williams yes angels yeah. always comes always on. angels I love that <laughs> song so much always good it's so good do you know that it was on a plane coming from Hawaii to, to here and he was on the plane at the front I was, and I had like a flashback to my like teenage dumb and I was like Every time I'm in London, I hear that song, and I'm always like, "Can you turn it up, please?" So good. It's I know, such and, a good we're, and, song. and like you're literally singing with the driver. I know it's it's, it's crazy. It's but, so good, and that's what she did. And she used to, I think, and by the age of three, she she shifted it slightly and said that she thought I would be a singer, an actress, or a doctor because I had started mimicking what she was doing. Yeah. So I would like if she came home with prescriptions, I would take the prescriptions and pretend to write something or like pre- scribble on them. But like I'd be in my head, I'm writing something. That much I remember. So so I know that she shifted it because I was those are the signs I was showing. She genuinely was just watching me and enjoying the things that I was like giving. I didn't know that it was going to happen. I don't think I realized I could sing until I was five when I did like a nativity play. And I, they asked me to sing Silent Night. And so I did. And I don't remember feeling nervous. I don't remember. I just remember knowing that when I had sung it, it made people happy. And so that's the connection that I had made with what imprinted on you. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to keep doing that. Wow. Because when you're five, it's black and white. If I do this, it's going to make people happy. If I don't do this, it's going to make people sad. So I'll keep doing that because it makes people happy. And I know I can. So I don't know that I registered that I was making a good sound. I just knew that whatever sound I was making was making people happy. So I continued doing it. Do you know what a valuable lesson that is to know from a young age and just to be able to associate a job or a skill with joy and with happiness? I mean, I think it's something that Oprah always talks about is just like how important it is for work not to feel like work. It's like, you know, to really find this pleasure in in how you spend like yeah. a large part of your life you know yeah. you know doing and I, I can't even imagine what that was like learning that at five I don't think I've lost it though I, I, it doesn't seem to go anywhere there's always a moment when I'm either on stage as a character or just singing a song where it feels like being filled with sunshine like from the middle of me and that's what it feels like and I can't help but like smile in the song or just be in the moment like it feels good it feels I love what I do. Genuinely, I love what I do. Wow.
you have two big, hefty films coming out. The first one is Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes. And the second one is Widows, yeah. directed by Steve McQueen, who's like yes. one of, I think, one of the most important directors right now. Yes. He's such an artist. Steve has this wonderful way of, whilst he's directing, you never forget that he's an artist first. And that's how it feels. It feels like he's painting pictures all the way through, trying to tell the right message in the right way and making sure that everyone does their best work. And it always feels like it's being handled by someone who cares deeply about what he puts out. It's a wonderful experience. And he, you know, he's one of those people that truly cares about the people in his films, those people that he picks to be a part of the stories that he's telling. He cares about them. And he, and there's a reason why he picks the people that he picks. There's a reason why they they get to be in his space. There's a reason why he'll sit and have a meeting with them. And there's a reason why we sit on the first day and speak through, not just read through the script, but speak through the the wants and needs of each of these characters, what they're trying to achieve, where they're going, what what is necessary for them to work, if there's anything missing. Like, he's pretty special. I really, really enjoyed working with him. I really, really loved this project. You know, he trusted me a lot with this movie because he had not seen anything from me. And his casting director, wonderful woman called Francine, had seen me in The Color Purple and had told him about me and on her word, trusted me, met me, and that was that. I don't know what I did or what I said in that meeting, but somehow he saw this character on me and he's, he, he believed that I could do it. You can tell he has a really strong intuition when it comes to choosing characters. Yeah. So let's talk about Bad Times at the El Royale. Yeah. So I was, strangely enough, in the middle of filming Widows when I got like the sides for this film that required a girl to sing live on set. And I was like, well, I can sing live. That's great. And then I read some of these sides and I was like, this feels really cool. I like this story. This scene feels great. So I put myself on tape. And then they asked me to tape again, so I taped again. And then what did are, you sing? Um, I it was um, I, I need love, love to ease my mind. I need to find fun. Can't hurry, love. Yeah. So I did that. Thank um, you for that. <laughs> so I put myself on tape again. And then after that, they knew I was coming to LA, and they had asked if I could come in for a workshop with Drew. So I come into the workshop with Drew. We do the scene. I don't think I, by this point I had read the entire script yet, so I didn't really know the enormity of what I was being asked to do yet. It's probably better that you didn't. Very much so. Very much so. A complete blessing. So I'm in this workshop. I'm really having a great time. He's lovely. Drew is amazing, our director. He is like a kid in a candy shop when it comes to film. And he wrote this script out of like complete love. And him on set is divine but we'll get to that so I enjoy this really cool workshop and I get back to New York and I think well it's gone now it's not I don't hear anything and then all of a sudden I get this call they want you to play this role Darlene I was like oh my gosh this is amazing it's amazing they send a script and I read I read some of it and I'm skimming through and I'm not in my head it's not registering how much I'm in the film at all and then it gets to when we're doing the contracts and my agent says so they're going to give you second billing in this film. And my response is, oh, that's really nice of them. Why, why are they doing that? Silence on the other side of the phone. Brian, yes. Why have they given us second billing? That's really, they don't have to do that. What do we do? Like, that's really nice of them to, to do. I mean, all of these are the people. It's great. 
I'm thinking I'm playing a really small character in this this, yeah. this piece. I'm thinking I'm playing a character that sort of disappears halfway through and he has the fact that I'm playing one of the, lead one roles. Of the leading roles. Like I, I'm the leading lady in this piece. I didn't realize. So silence happens and I go, am I the lead? Am I the leading <laughs> lady in this? He says, yes. yes. Oh, Oh, okay. And so I go back to the script. I remember I'm in an airport. We fly back from something. I start reading the script again. And then and I'm highlighting because it's time to get ready for it. And I'm like, I'm highlighting still. Oh, my God. I'm really in this movie. I am in this movie. This is this is a this is a big leading roles generally are. This is a big moment. Yes, there's a lot, took, a lot to oh memorize. My. Yeah. You actually had a really interesting sort of detail that got picked up a lot at the Met Ball. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about the manicure? So the manicure, I had spoken to everyone that was going to be a part of the Met Gala look to get all the details together because the idea for me, you know, it was heavenly bodies this year and I I didn't want to go as an angel. I didn't want to go as a priest. I didn't want to go as a, a pope Any of the or obvious anything, tropes. And nothing like that. I wanted, I actually wanted to go uh, take my inspiration from an artifact in the Catholic Church because that's my that's what my um upbringing is i'm roman catholic so um well that's where i went to school so i i know a lot about what is in the church and what the rich things that you see in the church and one of the things i used to always see is the sacristy which would hold the body of christ or the chalice that would hold the wine and they were always delicately jeweled and Everything was like put together. It was gold and it was, you know, sparkly and you had the reds, the deep reds of the wine and all of that. So the dress felt like the wine or the blood of God, which is like the, it was like a deep, deep velvet, deep red, purpley velvet, which felt like the wine. And then I decided to use myself as like the chalice or the artifact. And so I made sure that my nails also had the deep red on it um, and each nail had a completely different design on it so one had like a rosary on it another had the I wanted it to feel like the um, Sistine Chapel so you had uh, I think it's is it De, De Venus and De Milo mm-hmm. where they the hands the fingers touch in the middle yeah the creation, creation. Yeah. yeah so the, the the two fingers are touching so my one nail had the two fingers touching and each of and then two nails either side had uh, the two characters but the, I decided to make those women uh, of color because we never see that. And because like, why not? Because why not? And I am a woman of color and I felt like it felt necessary to, to do that. Then you had another nail with Mother Mary and just each nail had its own sort of story because I feel like my nails are such very much part of who I am as a person. They're the, the thing that you see a lot. I always have them done and I felt like if they weren't a part of this look, it didn't make sense. I had, I think I had a, a chain coming from it with a cross on it as well, like I decided to make everything a part of it. And then I made sure that my eyebrows, I had my eyebrows were jeweled. So like the chalice would have jewels in it. I had jewels on me as well. And I filled in all of my piercings. I have in total, I think 11 piercings in my ears and I filled each one of them with gold and with the diamond so that it felt like I really was the thing carrying. Like I felt like the artifact, yeah. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, I just, I love, I love being able to like, tell different little stories like that and no I dress off the thing. rack for you no <laughs> no I like I make I love messing around in it and I have a particular like love for fashion I 
have for a really long time and I am daring to say the least with it a lot of the time and I don't really mind that people might not like it. I just mind that I enjoyed doing it. Cynthia Revo, it has been such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled today. Thank, Thank you, you for so making much. the time. We love you. This was so awesome. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for <laughs> being here. I hope you're inspired after hearing Cynthia's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbarek. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to the Unstyled podcast on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with T Magazine Editor-in-Chief Hanya Yanagihara on reimagining media in the modern world. See you then.